Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This happened fairly recently. About six months ago, my brother, mother, and I were driving home from my grandparents' house. It was about 9 p.m., and we were driving down a very long road that stretched for miles on end. At this point of time, we couldn't see anything without our headlights, so they were on the brightest setting. And as we were driving down this road, we suddenly heard what seemed to be a motorcycle revving next to us. But as we looked out of our windows, we saw nothing. This noise kept fluctuating, getting louder and quieter as we kept going down the road. This noise dragged out for another five minutes as we were trying to figure out where it came from. We turned off the radio, opened and closed the windows, and even stopped the car to only still hear this revving noise, and keep in mind there were no houses, cars, towns for miles. We still haven't figured out where the noise came from and haven't heard it since. We still talk about this paranormal occurrence to this day as a reminder to never drive down that road at night again. When I was a kid, I lived in Clinton, Tennessee. 
Both parents worked full-time, so I was often sent over to stay with my grandparents, who had a plot of land in the vicinity of, but not right, no shame, near Greenville. Both of them had been in East Tennessee for their whole lives, and that area for a good many years. They had been established at their home for some decades before this story, and remained there a good time after. Recently, I had reason to return to that area of Tennessee after having spent the majority of my adult life in Minnesota. Being in and around the area, driving the same roads made me reminiscent about my lazy summer days tucked away at my grandparents. Learning to shoot on the same point .22 with which Grandpa had taught, Mom feeding fish at a neighbor's stock pond, or spotting deer and bear with binoculars from the back porch. When I relayed this to my mom, she in turn told me a story about a time I scared my grandpa half to death, then lied about hanging out with Bigfoot. At first, I had no idea what she was on about. Then I remembered exactly what actually happened with startling clarity, new context given by the experience adulthood provides. And no, this is not about Bigfoot or a cryptid. Before we start, some information about my grandparents' land. Their house was on a small hill surrounded by a grass now, the lawn gave way to a smallish hayfield than the woodland. Those woods lasted for a good half mile to either side of the home and a good several miles to the back. I hated the hayfield because it was too pokey to play in but liked to hang out in a creek that ran behind it. To get there, I would walk to the edge of the property just in the woodland to avoid the hay. While at my grandparents, the only rules were that I stay where I could see the house so the house could see me. I was to take a whistle with me anywhere I went. I'd take the whistle, seeing it as a badge of my regrettably young age. And the best part of the creek was out of sight of the house. That was the only stretch to where it got deeper than my knees, and thus the only part where I could swim. Naturally, I spent much of my time in that water splashing around, skipping stones and being a kid. One day I was playing in the creek when I noticed someone. It was a man, a stranger, on the bank watching me. He had long hair, beard, and pale skin so dirty it was stained. I could not tell his age and simply thought of him as old. I have no better guess now, as he clearly went through long years of hard living. He wore no shirt on, no pants, only a wrap of dirty cloth around his waist that I thought of as a Moses dress, thanks to some illustrated Bible stories. Around his neck there were multiple necklaces made from knotted tatters of cloth, fiber, and string. In those knots were various pieces of detritus, mostly bones, but some flowers and bits of dark glass. When I first saw him there by the creek, I was terrified, terrified, frozen still. The man, however, was smiling. He gestured from his squat with an outstretched arm, fingers down, and a kind of don't-stop-for-me wave. I didn't react, startled and reeling. Then he splashed at me, still smiling. He did it again. I splashed back. And soon we were playing, we both threw water at each other. And he jumped into the creek and stomped around with me, laughing all the while. He threw rocks into the water, and so did I. I pushed him, he pushed me back. We carried on for some minutes until my grandma called for me. With her voice, the switch had turned off. The man stopped in his tracks, gaze fixed back toward the house. Then, as my grandma kept on hollering, he looked to me. He crept back to his side of the creek, barely disturbing the water, then slid into the brush, completely silent the whole way. Holding my gaze, once he was out of sight, waited in the water until my grandma found me. She wanted to know if I was alone. I said no. She became very tense, asking who was with me while looking around. I didn't answer, didn't know how. 
Seeing noon, she pulled me back to the house without any more words, gripped like iron the whole time. At the house, the real inquisition began. I didn't really have new words. The event and this reaction overwhelming my ability to explain. Such silence further irked my grandma and I was swiftly placed in a corner, held without bail, awaiting patriarchal judgment. Around an hour later, my grandpa came home from work. He was told about my churishness and was ready to set into me again when I started talking. I told him about the man, hairy and old, dressed like Moses, about how we played, then he disappeared. I remember they digested this for a few minutes before sending me to my room. I was happy to go, and happier still, Grandpa did not yell like he usually did when misbehaved. Later, I was brought out for dinner. I ate in the kitchen with Grandma, but Grandpa called me to the back porch. He was on the swinging bench, looking out over the hay field turned red by the setting sun. He had kicked off his boots and put them next to his shotgun, and I knew that was odd for the gun to be out of the closet. Previously, we had used it to shoot bottles. Some I would me throw them into the air like they were clay pigeons. These escape bees were accompanied with speeches about how the gun was dangerous and only for adults to use. He went through my story again, his tone deadly serious. Eventually, he asked me how Harry was the man, really. I told him very thinking this was the right answer. He asked where... I told him everywhere like a bear. He ruminated on this and I grew more nervous, worried I was in trouble or causing trouble. Just wanting the trouble, wherever it lie, to end. So when he finally asked me to swear in the name of Christ and on my mother that I was telling the truth about everything, I said I had been joking. He finally yelled then and sent me back to my room. The family memory became that I had hid by the creek and made up a tale about Bigfoot. At the time, everyone was very upset with me and I was forbidden from going back to the creek or anywhere out of sight. The enforcement of this rule, like the others, was lackluster. Even so, for a time I didn't go to the creek. In my memory, I stayed away for a very long time, but I am sure it was only a few days that hiatus feeling interminable to my elementary age self. When I did start going to the creek, I took a bucket of toys, mostly Godzilla, and a thick stick plucked from the woodline on the way. I think I was conflicted about what to do if the man came back, imagining either impressing him with my toy collection or clubbing him, or both in turn. When did show back up? He appeared next to me as I dozed under a tree on my side of the creek. I was once again gripped with terror. He was not smiling, his face expressionless as he lurked beside me, having watched for who knows how long before I smelled him. I scrambled away, leaving behind my stick and toys. Coming to my feet a yard out, I stood in the sun while the man watched me from the shade. Eventually, he crouched and started to look through my bucket. I remember becoming indignant as he examined my toys one by one only to toss them into the dirt. It became too much and I started to lecture the man, telling him about how he got me in trouble, how he was a weirdo, how he stank. At some point he stopped looking through my things and calmly watched my tirade, face still no retro, eyes analytic. Once I had concluded my lecture I sat back under the tree to pout, having become hot in the sun. I remember the man made a noise, a grinding kind of snort, and when I looked over at him, he was chuckling while he inspected the last few figures in my bucket. I wanted to laugh too, but was more determined to stay sullen. Once everything was out of the bucket, to put one figure, Ghidorah, back into the bucket. He then stood to his hunched fullest, took the bucket by its handle, began to make his way back into the woods. 
If I stayed by the tree until he turned, said something, not a word I knew or know, and gestured with a forward sweep of his hand. At first I didn't comply despite knowing he wanted me to follow. After a few moments he yipped, clicked his teeth, and gestured again more emphatically. With his further prompt I did get up and come along, the man making approving noises and putting on his smile again. We went into the woods. The man led, but he was naturally quicker and quieter, making it hard to keep up. Eventually, he would stop when he lost me, knocking on trees with sticks and whistling rhythmically so that I may find him in the vegetation. He never came back for me, opting instead to guide me forward with the noises. I became lost, having only a vague sense of my grandparents' place being behind me. After some time, maybe fifteen minutes, we came to a bald. The man had me wait there, indicated by patting the ground, before going into the tree line alone. He returned from a different direction, pulling his sled. It was made from half of a discarded plastic drum and lined with small pelts and smooth bark. On the back half, there rested the fly-covered carcasses, squirrels, opossums, and other critters savaged into anonymity. On the pulling end woven, pouches were tied into place on it by the same eclectic cordage that made the man's necklaces. He put my bucket on the sled and tossed Dora in a pouch. He then called me closer with a glottal noise and beckoning wave. I saw the sled's pouches held many odds and ends, dried salamanders, mushrooms, metal bits, glass fragments. From one, the man pulled a square made from bound-together sticks, just big enough to slip over my wrist. From another, he pulled a piece of fool's gold and a small shard of geode crusted with a bit of purple crystal. These he handed to me with an air of business and a few more utterings of nonsense. He then patted the group for me sit again. I did so without much bewilderment, understanding we had traded the same as exchanging Pokemon cards at recess. I did not much miss Ghidorah anyway, as he was a bad guy. The bucket was a loss. In that respect, I think Ghidorah was chosen because its dull gold scales resembled something valuable. The bucket for its obvious ability to hold things. The man came back and gestured for me to follow by slapping his thigh. I did this readily. During the hike back, I tried to keep up and pay attention. I did so moderately well, having to be whistled over a few times. I did notice that our path was not straight. The man led me one way and then another, making turns unneeded by the lay of the land. We eventually came out by the creek, but from a different approach than we had left, I could hear my grandma calling for me again. Not from up on the hill from out in the field. The man would not cross the creek, but pushed me to do so. I did, but did not go to my grandma. Instead, I crept back to the house and around to the opposite side. There he laid the shrews by our front door, pretending to sleep I was found. I swore I'd been there the whole time. When I was sent back to my room, I placed my fool's gold crystal and charm in my bedside table for safekeeping. The next day, I went back to the creek to pick up my toys. The man was not there. However, throughout that summer, he did visit me again to sit under the tree or throw rocks at the water or yammer softy to himself. I would bring snacks and candy to share, and he would likewise give me stringy dried meat, which I ought not to have eaten, or honeysuckled blossoms, which I still would eat taken from my old bucket. He seldom visited long and never splashed and whooped like he did on that first meeting. At this point, you may be wondering why I posted to Backwoods Creepy and not Backwoods Weird, but Hulsamigus. Well, there are two more occasions I wanted to account. One gruesome, one awful. The one occurred near the 4th of July. 
I had brought two boxes of bang snaps to the creek. The man was initially wary of the little fireworks, but quickly came to appreciate their miniature pyrotechnics. He took the box I gave him gratefully. Even taking the empty box, likely for the wood shavings, which are excellent tinder. During the use of the bang snaps, I had scared a turtle into the water and to the opposite bank. It sat there watching us from the far shore. The man, after stowing the bang snaps in the bucket, noticed the turtle. With little thought, he scooped up a smooth stone and threw it with force and accuracy into the turtle, then waded over to retrieve the slider, which struggled meekly in his grasp, one leg knocked clean off. On the side of the river, he took from the bucket a new piece of stone. One side was rounded and fit in his hand. The other came to a flinty cutting edge. Working with deft experience, the man began chopping the live turtle above its neck, pulling up on the shell top. The thing struggled and bled as it was bisected. The dome eventually coming free, the turtle dropped to mingle its viscera with dirt and sand. The man rinsed the shell in the river, then offered it to me. In wordless horror, I ran. That evening, I came back to shuffle the dead turtle into the flowing waters of the creek. The shell itself was nowhere to be found. This experience did nor deter me from going to the creek or the man from visiting again. However, sometimes he would try to call me away from the creek with thumps and whistles. I would tell him I heard him and refused to move. On some occasions, he would join me. On others, he would leave. The last time we met, we were sitting under the tree sharing cowtails. From the woods there came whistling and the staccato knocking of a woodpecker. The man looked up and whistled back. There were a few more such exchanges before he stood, collected his bucket, and beckoned for me to follow. I was curious and felt comfortable with the man as a guide, so I did as asked. Nick took me back to the bald, a direct path this time, periodically stopping to call or respond to the other in the wood. Waiting for us at the bald was a woman and a child. The woman was dressed the same as the man, topless, wrapped at the waist. She was dirty, with long hair and a wire frame. The child was in a similar state, wearing a sack that went to their knee. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Man sat on the ground and the woman joined him, sitting in his lap, partly in his lap but leaning forward so that her elbows rested on her crossed knees. She had dark brown eyes that were fixed to me. The other child would not look up. I didn't know what to do and didn't speak. The other kid lifted their sack to wipe at their nose and I learned under all that dirt they were here. The man made a noise and drummed on woman's bare back. The kid looked at them still hanging her head, hair covering her face. The woman yammered and swatted at the girl lazily, the man echoing her noises, slapping skin to skin once more. At this bizarre scene, the girl approached me, stopping close enough I could smell her and hear her wheezing breath. She was thin but not emaciated, and slightly taller than me should she have straightened up. Man and woman fussed some more, then the girl leaned close to me and pressed her cheek to mine. Her hair was in between us, greasy and cold. 
She made no move to embrace me, no move at all, only pressing limply against me and breathing so loud it was all I could hear. During this time, the woman had approached. She pulled the girl back by her shoulder with one hand and delivered a flurry of slaps to the crown of the girl's head. The woman then gathered the girl's hair in one hand, using the other to sweep back her bangs. The girl was then made to look at me face bare. One side of her jaw was bulged out, smooth skin over a lemon-shaped bump. Her mouth was twisted by this deformity. Hearn's face to one side as of a fixed sideways and leaked a trail of clear snot. One eye was bulged and roomy, the other startlingly regular. It looked at me, blank and dark brown. The woman gave the girl's head a little shake, spat off to the side, then cooed like a dove as she smiled at me. Nine ran, there was commotion behind me. I think the girl was pushed to the ground, did not look back, and they did not pursue. My flight ended at my grandparents' house, my absence unnoticed. I chose not to tell anyone what happened, wanting to forget, not wanting to get in trouble, not thinking about the girl, the couple, what was intended for me. Nana spent that August inside whenever I visited my grandparents. I begged not to be taken, claiming it was boring and lonely. Sometimes when I sat on the porch or went from the car to the house, I'd catch a snippet of bird call on the wind or the distant tapping of wood and hurry inside. My grandma could tell something was wrong and made an effort to entertain me in town. My grandpa cared in his own way, involving me in his errands as he never had before. Eventually school started. Classes and friends eased me away from thoughts of the dirty man over the people in the clearing. Time did the rest. I think now that all of the people in the clearing were of a family, but their features, white skin, brown eyes, brown hair, are common enough that they all could have been unrelated. I am sure they lived together. They knew each other's signs and signals. They used their own words. I know that the Smokies are full of tales of feral people, wildman men, and superstition. I also know that they are full of people living in unlikely ways in unlikely places, and that those real people call others kin, and that through the chain of human connection, even a recluse living in a rundown shack is someone's somebody. I guess I am asking if the people in my story are somebody's someone, or if they are known, or if their behavior rings any bells, believes any known intention. I figured here, where the tale would not be discounted out of hand might be the right place to ask. I live in a small town, came around 7,000 people in the south of Sweden, so it's still kind of secluded, especially at night, and still cannot explain what me and my friend saw. The thing about our town is that it gets very quiet close to midnight. This particular night I followed my friend home since she lives in a bad area. Time was around 22.30. As usual, the only sound was our footsteps and the occasional car passing about one every Ten minutes or so. Me and my friend were talking about life when everything went very quiet. I could clearly hear my own breathing. This made both me and my friend stop and have a look around. We were standing in the middle of a schoolyard when we saw a bright light. At first, we thought it was a firework or something, but it made no sound at all. It moved past us at roughly 30 kilometer an hour, around five meters off the ground. Blew in a straight line before it reached a couple of trees where it sped up and flew away out of sight, still silent and in a straight line. I've tried looking up what it could have been, and the closest I've come to finding out is that the ball, roughly the size of a football, was a ball lightning. 
am still not sure since it was a clear winter night. Rarely have thunderstorms in the winter. The ball didn't have any lightning striking out from it either. It was just a bright white light floating in a straight line, completely silent. I have lived in southern New Jersey all my life and naturally have heard all the stories about the Jersey Devil. I haven't believed all of them, but I do believe that the Jersey Devil, or something cryptid, is out there. In the summer of 2006, some friends of mine and I took a ride to the Pine Barrens about a 30-minute drive. We weren't looking for anything in particular, but were hoping we would see something along the lines of proofs of the existence of the Jersey Devil. We were on Bulltown Road near Batstow Village, where we had heard of a lot of sightings and some strange things going on around there. As we were driving, we passed by an old abandoned house and thought nothing of it. And after a while of not seeing much aside from deer and an occasional owl, we decided to turn around. As we went by that old house, we saw what appeared to be bright green eyes peering out a window, armed with just flashlights. We began to drive up to the house, but then the eyes disappeared. Next, a noise caught the attention of me and my friend, who was in the front seat with me. She shone her flashlight in time for us to see something swoop over the car. By the time we could react to it, nothing was around. We went outside to investigate, but all that could be found were hoof prints in the sandy soil. The prints were too big to be deer and too small to be horse. As far as what swooped over the car, it was dark in color, but was large, larger than any bird that I know of. We were in Skykmush overnight in July 2007 for an event, and there also happened to be some kind of town reunion, so the hotel was full. My youngest was almost one and woke up crying and simply would not stop which was unusual for her. I grew concerned that she would wake up people in the rooms nearby so went out to the car to drive around a bit, thinking that it might soothe her to sleep. Skykomish is a tiny mountain town on Highway 2, along the Skykomish River, and the railroad does stop there for freight. It consists of a four-block square of streets, and a bridge crosses over the river to Highway 2, which I would not cross since I didn't want to be on the highway at night. Round and around, slowly, and with the window down as it was warm, I drove the square while my baby was quiet, but she would immediately cry if I went back to park at the hotel. Back we went, and the entire time I could hear the frantic cries of birds, yet could never see them. This twittering never stopped, and it didn't sound like bats, yet I still don't know what birds were crying in the dark like that. The strangest part was that I could drive alongside the railroad in full view of the trains, tracks, and buildings, where I could hear clanging and men talking, which seemed comforting, except that I never spotted a single person. There were lights and train engines were running, yet all this bustling activity never revealed the sight of a single person. The worst part for me was that my baby never did go back to sleep until after daybreak, so I was out the entire night among all the unknown noises. As I said, I don't think it was supernatural, but I wish I knew what the sounds were. I thought of it a couple years ago, when a young woman named Gia Fuda disappeared there and was feared dead, yet was found eight, nine days later alive, sitting naked next to the river with no memory of where she'd been. I will never stay overnight there again. I am from Oslo, city in Norway, but when I was a teenager, we moved to a bit more remoted place about 30 minutes outside the city. 
mostly houses and woods and moose, badger, fox, wolf, and lynx around, but mostly lots of roe deers, whose way used to humans, no farms and stables in the nearby area, no homeless people in the teens who snuck out usually hung around the mall, the steel fresh delivered Napoleon cake from the bakery's loading dock. We lived quite central by a mall, school and such. There was a small forest behind our house, maybe five kilometer radius. One summer, two friends and I went camping for one night in the small forest. We were 14, 15 years old girls. There was a bonfire place about 100 meter from my house where we put up the tent. The ground is packed tight and has this hollow sound when you walk on it. The tent was big for three and kind of round, so it would be hard for someone to reach the top without collapsing on the tent wall. And it was an old tent and the fabric was quite rotten. It did not rain that night. We did not bring any food or food equipment, except candy that we had inside the tent. What happened? We sat up gossiping and eating candy until midnight. When we tried to sleep, we heard hooves walking beside the tent. We laid still listening, pretty sure there were curious roe deers, but it was also this rattling sound of metal that seemed weird. Not like tan cans, but just like night armor sound from movies. Suddenly it started to blow up with strong wind, and we started talking to ease the atmosphere. The hooves and metal sound reminded me of a knight on a horse. Then my one friend said that sounds like two knights. We brushed it off as roe deers, but we never heard them leave. We kept talking when suddenly the wind ripped open a huge gash in the middle of the tent roof. Right above me, in strong light, can only describe it as a lightning, came through the opening. We screamed and the wind stopped and the light disappeared as quickly as it came. We didn't hear anything around us. It was dead silence. No sound of footsteps or hooves. No sound of helicopter or anything. We just looked at each other and panicked out of the tent and run to my place for the rest of the night. Went back next morning and took down the tent and looked around. Found nothing that could help us figure out what happened. We did not drink or take drugs that night. My parents slept so it couldn't be them messing with us. I've been much around in this little forest in my teens. Never experienced weird things before or after. In the aftermath, we nervously landed on some kind of rare lightning and roe deers with one foot in a metal can. But we didn't believe that either. Nine year ago this weekend, I took a solo backpacking trip to the Otter Creek Wilderness in West Virginia. Plan was for 16-mile loop over one night. Due to impassable river, I put camp up about a mile in. Beautiful spot with campsites along river. Wonderful weather. I hung out, hiked around, and enjoyed the solitude. I had not and did not see another person since entering the forest roads. Mid-afternoon, I decided to lay down in the tent and just relax nap. I'm awoken after about 45 minutes by the sound of a metallic clattering. Closest description. Take a round fire pit or large grill grate and drop it on its side, and it's close. Of course. By assume other people, nothing. No sign of anyone anywhere and nothing in the area that could have accounted for that sound. Curious and confused, I go about my day. Later, explored more dinner, fire and enjoying the forest night. Around 9.30. I heard a distinct single knock come from the hillside above me. As I turned to shine flashlight in that direction and saw nothing, another single knock came from over my left shoulder, closer to the river. I don't think it was across rivers, it was pretty clear. 
Suddenly feeling not alone, I packed up and headed out. Slept in my truck with no other issues. I'm well aware of knocking reports. Anyone have anything similar to the metallic sound experience? My name is Adam. I'm a Navy SEAL, a warrior forged by sweat, grit, and a relentless pursuit of excellence. Home is where my heart lies with my loving wife and two beautiful daughters. They are my beacon of light amidst the darkest of storms, my anchor in turbulent seas. The serenity of a quiet evening was shattered by the shrill ring of a phone. I knew what it meant. Duty was calling. A quick goodbye kiss to my girls. A firm embrace with my wife and I was off, boarding the Black Hawk with my team of eleven hardened seals, men I trusted with my life. Our destination was an oil rig in the middle of the ocean, a mechanical behemoth now shrouded in unnerving silence. All communication had abruptly ceased, and it was our job to find out why. Lake landed on the rig. We were met not by the expected crew, but by something far more terrifying. An unknown aquatic creature of monstrous proportions. Its scales shimmered with a menacing iridescence. Its eyes burning with a predatory intelligence. The rig had become its kingdom. We, the invaders, were met with relentless fury. The creature lunged its vast form whipping through the air, and my brothers fell one by one. The rig, groaning under the strain of the battle and the creature's monstrous weight, was a ticking time bomb ready to explode at any moment. In the midst of the chaos, I remembered my training. A creature of the ocean would likely have a sensitivity to sound, a weakness we could exploit. I rallied the remaining men, directing them to create a cacophony. We fired into the metal, wows of the rig, the deafening echoes reverberating through the structure. The creature, disoriented and invisible pain, retreated, fleeing back into the depths from which it came. We, the surviving two, were left amidst the wreckage of the rig, the bodies of our fallen brothers a stark reminder of the cost of our victory. We returned to base, the grim silent, filled with unspoken grief. Ten of my brothers had fallen, men of honor and courage. But we had survived, had fought an unknown terror, and emerged victorious. As I embraced my waiting family, their joy was tinged with sadness, a reflection of the heavy price of the duty we bore.